0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and I'm very, very pleased to have with me today for the first time a comic book historian, a uh, comic book artist, a director. It's none other than Mr. Steve Mitchell. Steve, thank you for coming to the show. It's nice to have you.
1: I'm, I'm happy to be here, Eric. You make me sound like I know more than I actually do. Well,
0: I, you know what? A lot of people uh, get their tongue tied a little bit with the intros because they don't know what I'm, how I'm going to do it, but you do know a lot more than you think you do, believe me. And that's why you're here, because you've been uh, getting busy doing some things about a comic book era specifically that I think interests me personally more than any other comic book era. But uh, why don't you tell the audience some of the things that you may have worked on that they might recognize your work from or even some of the things you've directed?
1: Um, all right, well, comic book-wise, um, I had a long-time association with Batman. Uh, I had a longish run with Norm Breyfogle on Detective and Batman sometime in the 90s. Uh, people seemed to like uh, the pairing of us together. I will say it was a lot of fun to do I think as an inker, which, which was my primary comics discipline, I was good with some guys and I was lousy with other guys. I was not one of those inkers who was good with everybody. Hmm. Um, you know, like, for example, Tom Palmer. I don't think I ever saw Tom Palmer do a bad job with anybody ever. Hmm. Uh, in, in my mind, Tom Palmer was kind of the gold standard. And so every time I would feel cocky about a hmm. job and I say, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, you know, I think about Tom Palmer and I go, yeah, well, it ain't Tom Palmer. So, <laughs>
2: um,
1: but, uh, I inked Frank Miller's first Batman job, you know, wanted Santa Claus dead or alive. That was in a DC, uh, Christmas special. Very cool. And, um, I had, I inked the first issue, uh, first six issues of static over John Paul on the late. And, and really great, John Bolian. I, I heard his, I heard the news of his passing, and I was I was kind of crushed. We weren't overly close because I live in Los Angeles, and I think he lived in Florida. But when I was working on Static, we would talk to one another, and um, um, I got to know him fairly well. He's very quiet, unbelievably sweet-natured guy, very, very enthusiastic. And, um, his passing is a great loss just because he was, he was a terrific guy, but I think he was a very gifted talent. I mean, I saw, I haven't really been that into comics over the last 20 years because I, when I, when I sort of was, I, I think of it as ejected from comics. Hmm. Uh, I, you know, I, I think like a lot of my contemporaries, Uh, There are a lot of guys who were working for DC and Marvel, and then they wound up going to Archie. Uh, I stopped working in comics when I stopped working at DC. But um, just to finish answering your question, I also had, strangely, two very long runs on Iron Man. I had one run in the 80s with Luke McDonald, Mm -hmm. and I had in the 90s with Kevin Hopgood. And sort of the hilarious part of, of all of this, and it's actually sort of funny, is that I never liked inking anything mechanical or technical. Hated it. Hmm. I, was, I was a guy who loved to ink. Um, guys were more spontaneous. In fact, my favorite penciler to work with was Gene Colon. I've I inked a couple of hundred pages of Gene. I inked, I think, six issues of the Spectre, and then I think I finished up, uh, um, oh, man, what was the name of it? It wasn't Nathaniel Dusk. Gene penciled and kind of inked that himself. Silverblade, Silverblade, that's right. Klaus had started it, and he quit, and then they said, you want to finish it? And I said, sure, are you kidding me? And I loved inking Gene. I loved it. I could have inked Gene Cullen for the rest of my career. I was inking that stuff, I think in the eighties and literally had I just inked Gene for another 10, 15 years, I would have been ecstatic. Um, his stuff was spontaneous. It was challenging. I like guys who used a lot of black and shadow, um, guys who knew how to lit were the guys I like to work with. John Paul was great at that as well. Hmm. Um, and then there were guys who just did this, uh, You know, Kurt Swan is a wonderful artist, but I don't think any scene he ever penciled anywhere, ever, anytime, did not take place at 12 noon. I think that came out right. You know, it just always, his stuff was always washed with light. Mm. And, And it's not like Kurt couldn't draw. I mean, I've seen Kurt's pencils and Kurt was probably one of the, you know, recipients of an awful lot of mediocre inking over the years, but Kurt was really, really talented, but he didn't light. There was no, there was no sense of drama about his work. Mm. And so Gene stuff had tremendous drama because Gene was a big movie fan. And I think in his own way, hmm. Gene was drawing movies on paper and, and that went back like forever. I mean, even when I was a boy, and I was reading Marvel Comics in the 60s, there was something cinematic about his work on mm-hmm. Iron Daredevil and, and you name it. Of course, Dracula. He loved doing Dracula. Uh, and my buddy, Marv Wolfman, loved writing Dracula. He was always very proud of what Gene used to do on that book because I think in, for Gene, he was making movies on paper, which was important to him.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I-
1: answering your question, I did a lot of other stuff in between, but those are my major runs and my major associations.
0: And, and then as far as uh, directing goes, which is something that you are, you're still currently in the process of putting together your, your latest film, right? Or is it complete?
1: Well, no, my first feature that I did was King Cohen, which mm-hmm. was a documentary feature about the great independent filmmaker, Larry Cohen. And, um, that came out about a year or so ago. That was my first feature. I had done a lot of Blu-ray and DVD extras and special features. I mean, I'm also a bit of a film historian and journalist. Uh, one of the things that I do a lot of now is I do a lot of commentary tracks, not usually by myself. I have a couple of guys that I work with. Uh, I do most of them for Kino Lorber studio classics and, um, it's fun to do. It's fun to take a lifetime of paying attention to movies and reading about movies and absorbing movies and chatting with them, chat, chatting about them with people. Um, because I think a great commentary track, I mean, if it's guys like me with other guys like me, you want it to be very conversational.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You want it almost as the kind of I, I think of it as like a bunch of guys sitting around a table in a pub yeah. having a drink or a beer, talking about this movie that they had just seen. Yes. It's not always about information. It's about, you know, creative thinking, what the director's trying to do, style, you know, context. Yes. Uh, I'm doing a commentary this coming weekend about uh, this movie, Arabesque, which was directed by Stanley Donnan in the 60s. And I think one of the things I bring to it is I was a boy in the 60s, but I also remember the nature of movies at the time. One of the things that's interesting and you may experience this when you do podcasts is that you may know something, Mm. but the audience doesn't know something or they don't have the context for something.
0: Right. And,
1: And so it's, it's an interesting thing to share. Um, I'm current, I just got started on a new documentary, which was, um, all my work was affected by COVID. You can't go into somebody's house with a camera and a couple of people and, and try and shoot something. Of
0: course. So, yeah,
1: you know, I'm mad about COVID because I, you know, I wasn't able to do much work.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: and then I have another documentary which I'm sort of planning to do, which will be comics related, and um, it it will be partially, but not entirely, autobiographical. Um, it's about it's basically about the blue jean gene generation, which is my name for all those long-haired hippie types with bell bottoms and big portfolios that broke into comics. They were, we were part of we were the first wave of fans that became pros. And even though a lot of the guys in the business did not trust us, because it was very I don't know if you know this about comics, but comics in the 60s, really until the 70s was a very buttoned down business. Yeah. I mean, people wore boots. or if you were a freelancer, you usually wore a pair of slacks and a sports jacket or something like that to drop off your work. It was it was grown-ups. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you know, we all looked like hippies, hmm. but they didn't trust us. A lot of people didn't trust us because I guess we were young. And all any of us really wanted to do was not to replace the people working in comics, but we wanted to work with our yes. hero. Yes. I wanted to sit next to Murphy Anderson or Jack Abel or Neil or Dick or, you know, uh, Joe Kubert. I mean, all of these guys. I mean, these are titans as far as I'm concerned. Everybody.
0: You're not wrong. And <laughs> as far as you're concerned, you're not wrong. They are titans.
1: Yet, you know, I think they all sort of looked at us with one raised eyebrow. Right. You know, like, you know, what's what's their deal? But I have to say, it was an exciting time to break in the comics, um, and I have enormously fond memories of all those days.
0: I love hearing stories about that time because um, guys like such as yourself, and then you think of uh, Denny O'Neill and Marv Wolfman and and Len Wein and and that era of guys that were all very much at the helm of of keeping these characters alive, bringing them into a new generation, but. that that sense of youth that was put into those books and then at the same time being told that these guys loved comics whereas you were always told before you were kind of looked down on or you didn't want to admit that you did comic books. Like Stanley, you know, has famously said, I was saving Stan Stanley Lieber for when I wrote my great American novel. I didn't want to be known as that. And and then you have this next wave of people doing it out of love, recognizing Which is a rare thing, I think, that they recognized, hey, you are Jack Kirby. Do you know who you are? Like, we know who you are. That was the first generation to kind of impress. It almost created the fandom. What became fandom was thanks to what you call the blue jean generation.
1: Yeah, fandom was not created by us. We were part of fandom, but there were guys like Phil Suling who created that famous 4th of July convention And what's interesting is nowadays, even small conventions are pretty big. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, there are all of these conventions that are just unbelievably huge, like San Diego. And then there's one in New York, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, I I hear just as big. I haven't been to that convention yet. Uh, Maybe nor will I. I don't know if I'm that interested to tell you the truth. But Mm -hmm. there were guys who loved comics so much, but didn't have the ability to get in the business, mm-hmm. but wanted to celebrate comics. And the thing that was great for me as a kid, especially with those schooling conventions, is I got to go there, listen to my heroes. I met other guys like Len and Marv and, um, and guys like Mike Kaluda and, Ber- and Bernie Wrightson. Um, I pestered other pros like Gray Morrow and... Um, all of these guys were sort of friends and acquaintances of mine, eventually Uh, Neil Adams, Dick Giordano, all of these guys, but it was a chance to get up close and personal and, and hear these names. You know, you look at the credits and they're just names and then you see the work, but then they became people Hmm. and you got to know them and you got to, you got to hear what they had to say. And it was, I I don't know about anybody else that you've ever talked to, but when I was in those rooms, I was literally eating up every syllable of what they had to say. And I do remember some panels. uh, There was one panel with Archie Goodwin, the great and totally beloved Archie Goodwin, someone I absolutely was crazy about. He was so nice to me as a fan. And then I worked for him. And whenever I would fly back to New York, which I did at least once a year, if not twice a year when I was freelancing. First stop would be Archie's office. I just wanted to see Archie and hang out with him. And he was just a wonderful, lovely, smart, fun, wickedly funny guy. But Archie and Al Williamson were on this panel talking about collaboration. And it was almost like watching Mike Nichols and Elaine May do a comedy, a kind of routine. They just were very dry and they had good timing and it was still interesting and informative and it was just, it was, it was just wonderful. Um, But yeah, it was an interesting time because the world of comics fandom that we know now was in its sort of birth stages. Mm -hmm. Um, Comics, even though they were made to be mass, cheap mass entertainment, the hardcore fans were starting to, come out of the woodwork. And I mean in a good way. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, comics were not cool. And if, if, if some of your classmates in, say, junior high school saw you reading a comic, you were an idiot. You know, what a dope. Mm-hmm. But I I mean, I loved it. In fact, I, I got a paper route. Remember those? <laughs> uh, it hundred again, 100 years ago. I got a paper route so I could afford my comics happen. Yeah. You know, my yeah. My parents are going to pay for it. So I said, well, how am I going to buy comics every every week? And so, I mean, I worked because I was really hooked on comics. I loved the medium. I loved the art. Um, by the way, I don't know if you were going to ask this question, but I'll just say for the record, my all time favorite comics were what Archie was doing for Warren with Creepy and Eerie and Blazing Combat. You know, the Archie Goodwin era at Warren produced from my money some of the greatest comics I've ever seen hmm. and the greatest art and stories. And Archie was such a smart, smart editor. He used to, when he knew somebody was going to hand in a job, he would write a script to give to them, but was written with them in mind. And, you know, he knew what guys like to draw. Um, he always allowed them to do whatever they wanted. That was the beauty of black and white. Mm-hmm. You know, again, for your, your listeners, if they can take a look at some of that stuff, you see the greatest comic book artists in the, in the universe, at least my universe, doing, I think, career best work. I mean, Steve Ditko's work for Warren. I mean, everybody likes Spider-Man, but artistically, he did his best work for Archie. Neil Adams did some brilliant work where he was experimenting. You know, he did one job pen and ink. He did one job in pencil. He did one job in wash. He did one job in pen and ink and markers. I mean, these guys were being allowed to experiment, and they, they, they reveled in it. Mm. Um, Ray Morrow did the best work he ever did. Um, Gene Collin's work was great. Tote's work was great. John Severin, you know, who's always money in the bank, he was great. Now, for a modern audience, these guys might not be very well known because most of them were not superhero artists. Hmm. And they most of them also did not do monthly comics. Dick Giordano once told me, And I told dry babble, see how long, you know, I, I, I I love it. (laughs) It
0: makes my job easy. I love it. (laughs)
1: Um, But Dick Trudano said to me, he says, nobody knows you're doing anything unless you do something for a year, you know, like you're, you're Mm. on a book.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay. It,
1: It takes about a year to get noticed on some things. And so my career was kind of a combination of doing stuff on a regular basis and then just, you know, taking what was more or less offered to me. But getting back to the, to the 60s and the 70s, and when I broke in, it was an exciting time. And then, of course, Neil Adams, which you may or, you may, or may not know much about Neil historically, is Neil was kind of the ringleader. He had an office at, at DC's 909 3rd Avenue offices that he shared with, with Murphy Anderson. Basically, free studio space in midtown Manhattan which, you know, you can't beat that. But the flip side is an editor would come to Neil and say, hey, can you do a cover? You know, that's why Neil did so many covers, because he was around. Mm. And But the other thing at that office was, uh, this DC office was also paired up with uh, Independent News, who was the distributor of DC and magazines like Playboy and TV Guide and stuff like that. So there was this really crappy kind of coffee room, lunch room. And they have four vending machines and the coffee in the, that vending machine I still remember as being absolutely vile. But pre-Starbucks, pre-a lot of things, you took what you could get. Right. And Neil used to hold court in that, in that coffee room, especially on Fridays. And a lot of people would come in and hang out, oftentimes to drop off work, oftentimes to pick up checks. And, you know, everybody would show each other their stuff. You know that was Neil's catch-all noun. Oh, that's good stuff, and it was almost like a clubhouse. It was very fraternal. I mean, I don't know if you've heard about much of this stuff, mm-hmm. but it was an exciting time to be in the business because there was a way to not, you know. I mean, if you are a comic book artist, whatever your discipline is, whether you whether you write, pencil, ink, letter, or color, as a fairly solitary thing
0: yeah
1: unless you work in a studio and the ability to hang with your contemporaries and to show your work and to share your work and to maybe get some interesting feedback although neil was merciless in his criticism Hmm. and um it it was a great it, it was just a a destination for Fridays, and then a lot of us would hang out with one another. You know, movies and pop culture influenced a lot of guys back in the day. And being in New York City, which is kind of a one of the pop culture capitals of America, yeah, of there, course, there were an awful lot of movies that you could go see. There were you know, there was theater, although not many people I know were into theater. Um, but there were also revival houses, and I think it was like Larry Hama who was kind of the tour guide who got a lot of a lot of my contemporaries, his contemporaries, to go see samurai movies. We didn't know anything about samurai movies over mm. here. Larry sort of steered us towards that. And then the Kung Fu movies came out. Denny O'Neill loved that stuff. God, he, you know, Denny was a friend of mine and a colleague. Uh, when When a lot of those Kung Fu movies, the good, the bad, and the really bad, would come out, he would go see almost all of them. Uh, on 42nd Street, which is notorious and famous for being in a really creepy place. But they had all these grindhouse movie theaters that would run all these grindhouse movies and spaghetti westerns and horror movies and action movies. And all of that stuff influenced, I think, people who were creating the visuals in comics, but also influenced the guys who were writing comics.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love hearing stuff like that because, I mean, today we got podcasts where creators and writers can come on and, and, you know, kind of tell their stories of their process. But being able to hear from you like this guy used to love to go to that theater and and then then you think of their work and their career and you wonder to yourself, oh, maybe that's where all of those – when this window of time where you get, you know, Shang-Chi and and Iron Fist and all of these kung fu comics coming out at Marvel and you're thinking – yeah, the, everything you said, I can see that happening. That's so cool.
1: Well, I'll tell you another uh, guy who's influenced by movies. I, I used to have a studio um, not too long before I moved out west that I shared with Bob Smith and Bat and Lash and a bunch of non-comics people. It was a great studio. And Frank Miller used to share a studio with Howard Shakin and Walt Simonson, and I think Jim Sherman Starlin might have been in there too, but, wow. um, wow. and Frank and I loved movies. And oftentimes on Fridays, we would go see action pictures. And as far as Frank was concerned, the more violent, the better. So <laughs> Frank and I were kind of close in New York when he moved to California after I did. We weren't as close because I think he thought he was more important than I was uh-huh. You know, it's just, that's just the way it sort of shook out. Um, But we used to go on Fridays to matinees in New York, usually in Times Square and go see movies like I, the Jury, which Larry Cohen wrote Um, uh, the challenge, which was a great John Frankenheimer actioner. Um, Those were two of the two, two that I remember the most because I think Frank really, as I did really loved those movies And you could see the whole action thing uh, just literally infuse Frank's work as a writer and as an artist. And he loved this. You know, Frank loves samurai movies, of course. Of course, he is. That's real obvious in his work. But again, we could do that stuff. Mm. You know, to be able to take, I mean, I usually worked every single day. But on Fridays was kind of an abbreviated day for me. I wanted to go to the movies in the afternoon. I didn't
0: want to go to movies at night. I didn't want to deal with crowds. Yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, good, good
1: time, I have to say. Good times. Man.
0: Um, when would you say, what would be the unofficial official date of when that blue jean era begins? Is there like a year to a, another, like a decade of time that you would put this in?
1: I, you know, it's interesting you ask that question because that's something I'm wrestling with. Because we get that project off the ground. I have to make a determination about who qualifies. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, Neil began things when okay. Neil came in, that makes but sense. he wasn't a blue jean player. Even Neil, back in those days, you know, he had, you know, Neil had the most heroic head of hair of anybody I've ever seen. You know, it's yeah. one of those
0: still pretty good one of those pretty things.
1: Good. You look at Neil and you go, he's got to be wearing a hairpiece. Or something. Uh-huh. It was just so perfect. But Neil was a, a, a you know a blue jeans and button down shirt and tie kind of guy. But when you know all of us long haired bell bottom wearing uh, hippies kind of came in, I would say it was around seventy, give or take. And the the blue jean era to me was sort of seventy ish to maybe seventy three ish, and then other guys came in on our heels. Okay. Um, but you know, it's one of those things that I haven't completely determined to my own satisfaction. Um, but I would say, let's just say the early seventies was probably, probably in my mind, the, the, the primary time, you know, cause guys like Carrie Bates and Elliot Megan, you mm. know, signed showed up, um, you know, Carrie and Elliot were good friends, Starlin Milgram. Um, mm. uh, you know, but guys like Bernie and Jeff and Kaluda kind of came in a little before us. Chaken somewhere in, in the middle. Alan Weiss, who maybe not be as well known as he should be, who's very talented, was around then. I think Barry Smith kind of got to America a little beforehand. So to me, it's a late 70s, late 60s, early 70s era, which somewhat coincidentally um, was parallel to what was happening in Hollywood in the movies that you know, the sort of new wave of filmmakers were coming in mm-hmm. who, had, who had grown up on old Hollywood but also grown up on foreign films. Um, the early se- the late, late 60s and the early 70s were a very fertile period of transition uh, in pop culture, I think.
0: I think so too. Yeah, I, I was having this discussion with my wife the other day and just saying when things really became – you know, an era where like today, and I'm biased because I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, but a of lot of things that came out in the 80s, we can still go back to now and a lot of it holds up. That wasn't, not to say that movies in the 60s or in the 70s don't, but there was a shift somewhere in between that time where movies and the things you can do with movies really started to shift and, and influence pop culture as a whole. I think that hadn't happened before as much.
1: Yeah, it's it's. I mean, the '80s was an interesting time. I I actually missed that that time period for movies in a lot of ways because not every movie had to be a blockbuster about somebody saving the world. Yeah, you could still do intimate stories, and I love crime stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and crime stories are oftentimes not big, you know, they're smallish. Um, but. I could go. I could go on for twenty minutes about the corporatization of pop culture, and you know, go it would for just it. Make, no, no, no. <laughs> it just frustrates the crap out of me. But most movies today, I don't care for mm-hmm. because you feel uh, you feel how corporate they are. I mean, I, I just got finished, I just got finished watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It took me weeks to get through it, and there were things about it I, I thought were great. Mm-hmm. And then I also thought it was overwritten. I thought it was, you know, it had a lot of, you know, diversity agenda stuff, which seemed unnecessary to me. Um, it just seemed there was corporate fingerprints all over it. Um, it wasn't about the filmmaking, the storytelling so much as, as, you know, hitting button points, whether it's for marketing or for whatever. And, you know, when I, when I was growing up, because I'm as big a film fan as I was comics because I'm a, I'm a film historian is that I read the Sunday New York times arts and leisure section. I looked at those ads and I looked at those credits. I wanted to see who the creative people were. I wanted to know who directed it. I wanted to know who the cameraman was. Mm. Uh, I'm a huge film music fan. You know, I was always looking for Jerry Goldsmith. Jerry Goldsmith is my favorite composer. Then and now. And I was and, and certain actors. You would all of that stuff, which had nothing to do with digital or technology, it was all of, it was all human and creative. I would make my decisions about what to go see based on who was in it. Never gave a shit about reviews. I mean, if something really was supposed to be lousy, I'd still have to make a decision. Great, great sidebar story to that is when I was working at DC in their production department, I, Warner Brothers had an office upstairs and there was a very nice woman up there and she said to me, she said, you know, if you ever want to see a movie, let me know. Hmm. And one day I called her and I said, can you get me tickets to go see The Swarm, which was this Irwin Allen movie? And she said to me, because she was, she was sort of maternal, she goes, Steve, really? You want to see The Swarm? Can I talk you out of it? And I said...
2: <laughs> I appreciate
1: that. Gary <laughs> Goldsmith did the music, and even if the movie stinks, which it did, I think I'll enjoy the score. And she said, okay. And that was exactly the case. It wasn't very good, but the music was fantastic. That's why I used to go see stuff. It was the creators who were important to me. And now the whole identity of creators has been really you know, squashed, I think, by marketing and all of that stuff. And so most movies that I see these days, I don't care for. That doesn't mean that it's all bad, Mm -hmm. but it's not the same as, you know, when I was growing and absorbing all this stuff. And then old Hollywood as well, you know, that here's the thing about pop culture, which nobody will talk about. Maybe, maybe I, I'm the only one, but In the old days, if you worked in Hollywood in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s, your influences were art. People would look at paintings. William Clothier was one of the best cinematographers in the 50s and the 60s. He was kind of John Wayne's guy. He did a lot of outdoor stuff. I read an interview with him and said, I learned everything I know about composition by looking at newspaper strips. That... He was influenced by art. And when you see a William Clothier movie, it's usually incredibly well composed. And he was probably looking at guys like Roy Crane and Noel Sickles and maybe, you know, maybe not Kniff so much because Kniff. Well, that's not true. Some of Kniff's stuff did take advantage of things like wide shots. But the light, the use of light in old movies was influenced by paintings, probably by the masters. And, and today I think a lot of movies are influenced by technology, what you can do technologically. Now, when I was making King Cohen, that was a huge help to my making that film. You know, we did a lot of stuff. We could do a lot of stuff, you know, in post in terms of color. Um, we were able to do digital cleanup in some places. We actually use digital makeup on a couple of people. Um, of course, editing digitally is r- remarkable. Um, it makes things so much simpler because you can say, let's try this. No, let's try that. It's it's instantaneous. There's no cutting of film. There's no splitting of film. There's no gluing of film. And my admiration for people who made movies the old-fashioned way, you know, skyrocketed because I was allowed to sort of throw, sh- throw shit against the wall and mm-hmm. see if it stuck because I had the ability to quit, you know, to make all these quick changes because of digital uh, technology, a great tool. But I think people think about making uh, of storytelling as something you can do technologically. If there's ever a shot that you see in a film, and I'll get off my soapbox in a second. If there's ever a shot you see in a film that cannot physically be shot with a camera, I don't care how well done it is digitally, it's a bad shot. Hmm. You should never, ever have something that can't be done with a camera because then it means you're basically, you know, you're lying.
2: Hmm.
1: And so it's weird. Lying is maybe a weird word, but I, I recently saw a trailer again for this. Uh, I read an article about Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor and one of the shots in there is a zero drops a bomb and the camera follows the bomb all the way down. You know, to the target and blows up. There's no camera in the world can do that shot. Now, was it a cool shot? Yeah, but it wasn't. It did. It, it took me out of the movie because I'm going. Well, that's not real.
0: That's interesting. But, that's a very interesting uh, takeaway because I think some people, some people, you know, unlike yourself, who or even people who are really, I guess, I guess the appropriate word would be geeky or nerdy about these things where we really appreciate the detail and the the craftsmanship of what it took to do something. Um, even when it comes to a comic book page, they just, it, it just goes by them, you know, it just, Oh, it was fun. It was a fun action movie. I've been guilty of that myself, but it is very interesting for you to describe it in a way that's like, yeah, that, that, if you are really into the movie, that could completely take you out of it.
1: It's kind of strangely soulless. Mark Cirelli, who is the uh, you know art director and design director at DC, is one of my best friends, mm. and we talk about this stuff a lot. And one day he said to me, "Have you seen this Batman Elmer Fudd story mm. that I think Tom King wrote and That's Lee true. Weeks drew?" Yeah, he said, I said, "No, you know me, I'm not I'm not really into comics anymore." And he said, "He said." Well, he told me to shut up, but he, it was a little nastier then. He said, I'll get you a copy, and I want you to read it. Yeah. And so he got me a copy of it, and I read it. And he said to me, if all comics were like this, I would be insane for comics again. Because it was a great story. Uh, they pulled off the conceit of Batman with Elmer Fudd in a great film noir sort of way. Mm-hmm. But more importantly and profoundly... That art job by Lee Weeks, who's a guy I really admire and I like his work a lot, was you want to learn how to draw comics? Look at that. Look at that comic book. Great sense of place, great sense of acting and performing from all the people that were in the frames, Uh, a great sense of detail, lighting, Hmm. all of the things that you associate with great comics, but also great storytelling in any medium was there. And the most important thing to me was the color was minimal, and as far as I can tell, there were no digital after effects, which I think has become kind of a pox on comics right now. Hmm. Um, I, I will go. I will soapbox this. <laughs> Alex Toth always used to say the trick to drawing comics was to control the black plate because you know comics were you know three colors and then a black mm-hmm. put together. Mm-hmm. And Alex Toth used to do a lot of work for Joe Orlando's mystery books. And then a guy named Jerry Serpey, who was not held in high regard as a colorist by Joe Orlando. And I actually can say that Joe would come in sometimes and he would see something colored by Jerry Serpey. And he and my old boss, Jack Adler, would get into these screaming fits that were... Highly entertaining, <laughs> and it usually happened on a Friday, so it was kind of a reward, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I used to work. I used to work for Jack, and then at one point, I worked in the production department. I used to paste up covers and stuff like that, and especially if Jerry colored something by Toth, you know, Joe would blow a gasket. Jerry would also color stuff by Toth that was done for Joe Kubert, and Joe Kubert would not blow a gasket. But the trick and what I'm going for is this. Toth controlled the page in terms of his lighting and the way he used black and shadow. And so it was colorist proof. And so Mm. no matter how it was colored, it was still an Alex Toth job. Now today I've seen a number of comics where you have a penciler and maybe an inker. And then the colorist comes in and does all kinds of digital effects because the technology is there.
2: Right. Well, who's the
1: mo- who's the most important person in terms of the, the result of that page? It's not the penciler. It's not the inker if there was even an inker. Right. It's the colorist that the page becomes the property of the colorist. And I'm you know I'm very old school. I don't believe that should be the case. I think the penciler and the inker really should define the page. I also believe from a taste standpoint, less is more. Just because you have every color of the spectrum doesn't mean you should use it. And so a lot of comics that I see today, I'm going, you know, remarkably well produced, nicely printed. I mean, God, I wish we had printing like that back in the old days. Right. Uh, But what I'm seeing is I am seeing something that's like the same as computer special effects. You know, when you, when you watch any movie today, it is the work of a thousand workstations around, around the globe. You know, when I was growing up, I watched Ray Harryhausen movies. Well, those monsters were, were, were created, sculpted sometimes, not all the times and animated by one guy. And if you watch an old Ray Harryhausen movie, you can feel his hands. You can feel the artist's hands. And so a lot of stuff today is you can't feel the brushstrokes, because there are no brushstrokes. It's all all digital. And so what happens is, I don't know how I got on this crazy diatribe, but I think that's the difference for me uh, as far as comics are concerned, that now they are a collaborative result as opposed to an artistic personal result.
2: Mm. You know,
1: think of any guy that you love from the sixties or seventies or even the eighties. You know, if it said it was a so-and-so job, it looked like a so-and-so job.
0: Do, do you Nowadays, feel that there were more, there were more hands on deck though back then? Cause now you, you like you said, the, the artists today rarely have an inker and, and you made a great point about the colorists really getting a, a certain level of, uh, credibility more than ever with certain books it's almost like if that person's coloring the book i'll i'll buy the book but do you think back in the 60s and 70s it was so much more of a production line in a way because you had an anchor and a letterer and a a colorist and all these different things
1: yeah, I mean the thing is, it was still a smaller business in those that's days. That's
2: true. Yeah, that's I for mean, sure. you think
1: about it. Was it was it John Buscema was penciling three books a month? Mm-hmm. Kurt Small was penciling two or three books a month. Kirby was doing a couple of books a month.
2: Right. You yeah. know,
1: nobody inks John Buscema better than John Buscema. John, yeah. if you see if you see on Facebook like I do from time to time drawings or illustrations or pieces of things that John Buscema inked, you go. There's no one qualified to ink John Buscema as much as John Buscema. But he was such a good penciler and such a good storyteller. Right. You know, Stan, in his wisdom, said, well, I want this guy doing two or three books a month for me. Just like Kirby, you know. Um, Ditko was the only guy who did it all himself. You know, even Don Heck, who inked a lot of his own stuff back in the day. And by the way, Don Heck is a... In my mind, a highly maligned talent. He was much better than a lot of people used to say he was. But Saul Harrison taught me very early when I first worked in DC's production department one summer that they were in the magazine publishing business. And they were and the company is called National Periodical Publications, meaning they came out every month and they had to come out on time. And so so many decisions were based on pragmatics, you know. uh, I don't know how familiar or your listeners are with Vince Coletta's work, but pretty much nobody liked Vince Coletta's work. Although Murphy Anderson said some complimentary stuff to me about him. He said he liked the way he inked Thor and he liked the way he inked romance comics. I said, why would you like Thor, Murphy? And he said, well, because Thor looks like Thor. It doesn't look like the FF. (laughs) <laughs> or Captain America, or any of that stuff, and I said, "Well, you have a point." Right. But Vince Coletta could ink a book over a weekend. Yeah, I wish I wish I could. Um, now he might have had background help, but still, he can still do twenty-two pages of figures over a weekend. And it was professional, but it wasn't artistically great in my in right. My so. Now you have an awful lot of people who want to do comics. I don't know if they make a living. Um, And comics are just different than the way they used to be. It's not – I guess what I'm trying to say is when I grew up, even before I got into the business, there was a sort of signature work aspect of comics that I really absorbed and came to love. Mm. If that makes any sense whatsoever.
0: No, I I completely understand and I think uh, there's been a lot of times where – um, when that was the compliment that I gave an artist, they really appreciated me saying that. And I never, never, under, I, I never fully understood why because it's like, well, you draw. It's, it's your drawing. I, I should be able to recognize it. But, I, but based on what you just said now, having that signature work where you stand out from somebody else and it's recognizable, may, maybe for better or for worse, that's kind of what you're hoping you get to. And you're right when you think of somebody like a John Buscema. John Buscema, um even if you don't want to read the Silver Surfer series, just flipping through those pages is something like you can. You know the story based on the way that those guys well, paced it.
1: You know the definition of good storytelling, don't you? Tell me. Okay, Joe Kubert told me this. So and and Joe Kubert knew a couple of things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that basically good storytelling is you're able to read the comic without and get the sense of the story without yes. having to read any dialogue.
0: Yes, I had I had just recently had a conversation with uh, Ron Friends, and he did a Superman annual that before I could read it was with John Byrne, the one with Titano, That I felt that same sort of feeling about where I could go through the whole book and I knew all the emotion. And all of who was the, the, the rotten person and who was the person who had empathy based on the way that he paced and paneled that book. So yes, I, I completely agree with that.
1: And and from my money, I think Hubert was maybe one of the top three storytellers in comics. I know a lot of people like Will Eisner, but he didn't do a lot of comics. He only did the spirit. But Will Eisner was a great storyteller, but but Kubert I got a collection of his NMEA stuff. I think IDW put out one of those artist editions, which are shot from the originals. Mm-hmm. And I knew all those comics. I'd seen those comics, but to see them sort of, you know, the size of originals without color. I'm looking at this and I'm just, I, I don't know how I can be even more in awe of Kubert, because I was always in awe of Kubert as a talent and also as a guy, he was a great guy. He was mm-hmm. a very nice guy. I once wrote something in kind of an obit for him saying that he was a humble titan. Now, Joe had an ego, trust me, but he didn't wave it around. You know, um, he always said, how are you doing? What are you up to? He's always interested in you. Yeah. And that, that was, that was a very endearing. It goes a long quality. way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. um, I will share one one other quick Neil Adams Joe Hubert story, please. When when Joe when Joe Joe got the assignment to draw Tarzan, it was a big deal in the offices. Everybody was excited about it. And then I think one day Neil, who I think was a little jealous because you know it's it's like athletes when you're when you're face to face with an athlete who's as good as you are, hmm. most in most ways. So Neil did this drawing of Tarzan. And it was typical Neil's 70s pencils, you know, tight, really nicely done, rendered. And then Joe saw it, and Joe said, Can I borrow this for a second? And he took it back to his office at his desk. He put a piece of tracing paper over it with a marker. He gave Neil notes on how to really draw Tarzan. He said, You know, because Tarzan swims, he's an athlete, his stomach shouldn't be, his solar plexus shouldn't be so tight. He's more. <laughs> he, he, you know, he should he should look more like an athlete and a swimmer because of what he does. And oh man, it was great to just see these two guys give each other shit that way. That's um, awesome.
0: That is awesome. Playfully,
1: playfully, respectfully, but you know, I don't think ever anybody's ever schooled Neil Adams on anything the way Joe did that day. It was I don't
0: know if Neil Adams would let anybody do that except for Joe Kubert. <laughs>
1: I would say the list is pretty short. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe if Alex Toth said, you know, Neil, your, your storytelling's not that great and you don't add any space in a panel. you know, Neil might, and I put underline might listen to him.
0: Yeah. i've I've enjoyed listening to a lot of uh, Neil Adams stories of that era. Was he would you say was he like the you, you mentioned it before and I guess you you're already answering the question, but amongst that group of people, was he, he was the leader of, I guess, the artists of that time kind of leading the way. Was there someone amongst the writers who was kind of leading the charge? You
1: know, that's a, that's a real interesting question. Um, I don't know that there was an artist who was leading the charge in the I'm the leader of the pack sort of way. I think Denny led by example because Denny was a really good writer.
2: Mm-hmm
1: and he was writing stuff that was getting a lot of press Mm -hmm. and he was writing stuff that was getting a lot of attention. Uh, what was interesting is Denny used to use movies and television and books as influences to write, you know, he was writing, I think more adult stuff. It's just that the adults in his comics happen to wear costumes. Right. Um, I think Archie Goodwin was one of those guys who led by example. When I, when I tell you that Archie was beloved, as I said before, I have never met a human being on the planet that didn't love Archie. Personally, but also profound amount of respect uh, professionally. As a writer and as an editor, Mark Chiarello, when he was editing um, Batman Black and White and then Solo, he said, I always said, What would Archie? Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, like, what would Archie do? That was always kind of in his mind, in the back of his mind, when he was editing those books. And I thought Batman Black and White was a wonderful comic. And I think a lot of the solos were good too. And those are the kinds of things that I think if Archie had been around, he might have done as well. Um, but yeah, there was nobody quite like Neil, but uh, and I'll be truthful about it, nobody quite had the ego quite like Neil. <laughs>
0: I think we all we all kind of know that.
1: <laughs> it's true. Yeah. <laughs> but but he was, you know, he was kind of a great dad figure for all these wayward kids. I mean, I was lucky. I grew up in New York City. My ability to break in comics was fairly easy in terms of proximity. But there are an awful lot of guys who came from places like Detroit. Uh, Baltimore places in the south there are a couple of guys came from Las Vegas there were some West Coast guys you know and the thing is I don't know if you've talked about this with your you know with with other interview subjects a lot of these guys had to say I'm gonna move to New York City well New York City in the 70s again I don't know if you know anything about this was not a great place no. it was it was dangerous um, the city was falling apart. Um, now midtown, tourist Manhattan always looked good, was always clean. But, you know, some guys, I, I, there was one guy used to work with a guy named Guy Lillian who was from, I think, Louisiana. And when he moved here, he got an apartment in Spanish Harlem. Well, if you're a white guy living in Spanish Harlem, that that's almost like an invitation to get mugged. Mm. Uh, (laughs) But he didn't know any better. All he knew is that the rent was going to be a certain price and that's what he could afford but all these guys had the courage, and I, and I really admire this, to pack up their stuff and come to New York to matriculate into the business. Because here's the thing, and this was true in the world of illustration as well, and commercial art in general. If you wanted to work in those areas and those disciplines, you had to live in what we call the tri state area, which is New Jersey, Westchester, New York City, Long Island, Connecticut. You had to be an easy train ride or a subway ride or a bus ride to get into the city to be able to drop off your work. Very few guys worked transcontinentally before there was uh, uh, Express Mail and FedEx. It was only it was when FedEx really caught on that people started to leave, leave New York for greener pastures.
0: So being, being in New York, you had the offices there of DC and Marvel. How often would you tour the offices of those two uh, establishments? When I was a fan or when I was a pro? When you were a fan. I'm just thinking, taking it back to when you fell in love with oh, the comics. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Um, Marvel was somewhat impenetrable. Okay. They had very small offices, and I don't think they liked fans much. Mm-hmm. I would go up there occasionally and pester people. You know, I wasn't publishing a fanzine. I wasn't doing anything other than I wanted to sort of be in and around the people I admired, hopefully to maybe learn something. However, D.C. had a very famous Thursday after lunch tour, which when they were at 575 Lexington Avenue – Um, if you went there after lunch, it was always after lunch, however that was defined, it was usually around 1.30, they would let the fans come in and they would sort of give the fans a tour of the office. Now, the hilarious part was one summer I used to go every single week and Marv (laughs) would be there and Len would be there and Jerry Conway was one of the guys. Oh, man. Um, Mark Hannerfeld, um, who died way too young, was like a major serious fan. And he became an assistant editor fairly early on. But they would sort of look at us like the wrecking crew. And, and some of the editors were very nice. Some, some of them didn't want anything to do with it. Jack Miller was very nice to me. Um, Murray Boltonoff was very quiet. I don't think he liked us. Uh, Jack Shipp was nice. George Caston was professionally nice Nelson Bridwell of course was a kindred spirit um, Kaniger I, I think hated us kids and strangely <laughs> enough Mort Weisinger who had a horrible reputation as a bastard and this is not me speaking out of school I think a lot of people yeah, I've say heard that.
0: that too yeah
1: and he was terrible to work for I mean he was really. Nasty to guys, especially to guys like Shooter. Although Carrie Bates got along with him, but Carrie is maybe the second most liked guy in comics after Archie. After Archie at the time, Carrie's a very nice guy and still a friend. Um, but Mort was actually pleasant to the kids, and I think maybe it was Mort going, "This is my audience. I'm selling shit to these kids. Right? right I don't want right. to alienate them. Right? So." Being in New York, you'd have access and you could hang. And I met guys like Neil in the very beginning. Uh, Sikowski, uh, remember a guy named Jack Sparling? I don't. Uh, probably, that name no, does not a bell. No. Jack Sparling was considered kind of a hack, but I always liked his stuff. He did a lot of mystery stuff and strange adventure stuff. He worked a lot for Dell on their movie comics, and he was incredibly fast. I have a strange fondness for his work. And I remember Archie telling me, Archie had him as the penciler anchor on, I think, our fighting forces for a while. And I remember he showed me with great enthusiasm this job that Sparling had done. And Sparling really put out on this one. He worked very, very hard. And I said, you know, there's kind of a there there. You know, sometimes you you don't give guys credit for having the talent that they have. And, but I met Sparling. I met, I met Kurt Swan, who was always a very, very warm guy. And even warmer than Kurt Swan was Kurt Schaffenberger, who was like an unbelievably warm guy. Um, You know, Carmine was there. He wasn't quite um, running the place yet, but he was sort of the uh, art director without kind of having the title. And then he ultimately became the publisher. And... um, but Carmine was actually pretty friendly uh, to me anyway back in the day. Most of the guys were pretty nice. Sikowski I always found to be somewhat aloof. But even when I was in the business and I was working at the company, because I was a big fan of Sikowski. I think Sikowski's very underrated. Um, he was still kind of aloof. He, he, was, he was a somewhat strange guy. Hmm. Um, but you know, again. Remember most of the guys that I've been talking about from that period, the guys who I was I, I you know, we were fans of are all greatest generation guys. They were grown ups. You know, yeah. they weren't nutty they weren't nutty artists, they were grown ups and they had responsibilities. Some of them
0: fought in the war, perhaps, like Jack Kirby did.
1: So. Yeah. yeah, well Kirby did, I know that. Yeah. Um But, you know, they, Jack Abel, who used to share space at Neil's uh, Continuity Associates, and I love Jack, Cranky Jack. um, Jack once told me, he said, I ink 18 panels a day. I said, why 18? He says, it's the equivalent of, of, of three pages a day. And Jack inked three pages a day, more or less like clockwork. Even at my peak of confidence and speed, I couldn't do that. Jack also did his backgrounds too. That was the other thing. Um, But it was his job, except the difference was he didn't have to be in an office working for someone at nine o'clock. He would get to Neil's place at about 10 and he'd work till seven. And he hung out with people who were like minded. they were different kinds of guys. I mean, I don't know how often you hear people talk about those guys, but they were all different. They weren't like my generation, which sort of started to, and I'm not taking any credit for this, the Blue Jean gene generation started to sort of set the tone for what freelancers were like kind of in the future, down the road.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, that makes sense. you
1: know, everybody who worked in comics in those days, I think, Worked in comics for a couple of reasons. Two of the reasons are, one, they weren't good enough to draw a newspaper strip. If mm. you drew a mm. newspaper strip, you would get respect. If you drew comics, you didn't get respect. So funny. But comics paid faster than any other art job in New York City. Mm. EC paid twice a week. Marvel paid once a week. Mm. Um and so, yeah, the rates weren't great, but you would get paid quickly. Julie Schwartz, if you got an assignment, Julie would voucher the check. So when you dropped the job off, he would open his drawer and give you a check. Hmm. So it was I mean, a I you,
0: There was it was it was a Garrett. You knew you were getting paid for this work. Yeah,
1: Makes but sense. it engendered loyalty and professionalism, which was another thing that was like really important. And these guys who did comics, understood the way it worked, but they could, you know, it was not like being a freelancer is now where you wonder where your work is going to come from. Every one of those guys had relationships with editors who kept them busy all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was a different universe. Right. But relationships were very key and a very important part of the game and Giordano taught me that early in my, in my uh, mentorship, you know, that I had with him.
0: So, so interesting. Such an interesting time to see how you often hear when I would listen to creators of that era who wanted to become comic book artists and writers often be discouraged saying the business isn't going to be here for much longer. The business isn't going to be here much longer. But these were the guys who kept it going strictly out of their love for the medium of, of comic books. What was the biggest pushback for, or if there was any for you guys? Because you went from a, a very, um, those two decades, as far as socially and, and culturally, pop culturally, but everything about that time was such a shift constantly. So many things that were happening that had really never happened before. Was there a lot of a clash of ideology in the 70s between guys like a, a Denny O'Neill? who was very liberal in his views and what had come before him of what you're trying to do with these characters or did those older guys not really care because this is just work, do what you want for the, with them.
1: You know, I I don't know that anybody really cared. I know Neil and Denny used to, you know, give each other a hard time because Neil saw storytelling one way and Denny saw it another, even though they did brilliant work together. Right. Uh, Right. Denny got a lot of respect because he was a very good writer. Um, I don't think political politically or pop culturally, there was ever any conflict, uh, still in terms of the freelancers, they were still artists and writers and those guys, you know, there were versions of us. They were just older versions of us. Mm. We were, we looked different, but a lot of what interested them interested us. Um, I know that there was resistance at Marvel to any of the new guys. Okay. Because I think John Romita was kind of the art director. And I always, and John Romita is basically a very nice guy, but I think that he felt maybe a little threatened by new guys. Um, But also Marvel was a very house style oriented company. Mm-hmm. DC was a company that had a bunch of different editors, right? And 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 the house style of DC was a very a varied house style. It, you know, Joe Orlando books like look like Joe Orlando books, Giordano books like look like Giordano books, Hubert books, Archie's books. Even later on, guys like Al Milgram and Larry Hama, who were freelancers who became editors and very good editors, I might add. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. It, Every every comic book that would come out from an editor was a reflection of their taste. You know, Marvel Comics, which was basically Stan Lee's company as an editor, mm-hmm. all that stuff was a reflection of Stan's taste and ideas about what made good comics. And then Roy came on board and, and picked up some of the heavy lifting from Stan. But Stan's taste and, and Roy's taste, I think, were... Um, in sync with one another and then when Marv and Len and Jerry Conway all went over there they went over there to create Marvel comics whereas you know again you look at the stuff that came out of Joe Orlando's office it was different than what came out of Julie Schwartz's office I mean Joe's stuff was experimental he played around with stuff certain inker combinations and penciler combinations you know He really responded to guys like Bernie and Kaluta. Uh, There's a very famous House of Mystery cover where a guy is being attacked by a giant bat. It's a very famous House of Mystery cover that Bernie did. And I was there the day he brought it in. And Joe was running around saying, look at this cover. Look at how great this is. I mean, you know, it was like he just had a kid and he was handing out cigars. And (laughs) Julie Schwartz would have never had that cover in one of his books. I mean, granted, they were doing different types of books. And Hubert was different. Archie was different. Um, although I will tell you this, there was a great issue with Sergeant Rock uh, called Easy's First Tiger. And it was basically uh, the story, a North Africa story with Rock and Easy Company where they encountered their first tiger tank, which was penciled and ink by Russ Heath, who I think is very underappreciated. It was a phenomenal comic book job. And literally everybody in the office was looking at this going, wow, that's pretty good. Hmm. Even Saul Harrison, who was not uh, uh, easy with a compliment, looked at it and goes, nice job. And that was kind of the fun, you know, to be around when something exciting would happen. Now, I'm sure it happened at Marvel too, because mm. there were too much good stuff being done over there. I'm sure when Staranko was handing in his stuff on Shield, yeah. uh, it was exciting.
2: Sure.
1: But, but DC was different. And, you know, not better, not worse, just different. And but each each editor was kind of a proud papa. The one guy who never got excited about anything in my experience was Murray Boltonoff. Murray was a very quiet guy, very professional. You know, his books actually sold pretty well, even though that they were not as, I think, artistically uh, interesting as as some other books. But, you know, he did do that Brave and the Bold run where Neil was drawing almost every issue of it. And um, but those were good times. You know, I mean, remember, I was a fan
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then, you know, Marv was a fan. Len was a fan. And all these guys were fans. And then you'd be in the office and you'd see something. And then you'd take a look at the originals with, you know, there's no bad printing or bad color. It was exciting. Absolutely. You know.
0: Yeah. I can't imagine what that would have been like to to have, one, been a kid who was going on these tours with all of those names that you mentioned and then to finally be working in that next generation of creators and writers, and seeing all of these things unfold, and being there every Friday, like you said, where they were those you know abbreviated days where you can kind of have a little bit of uh, entertainment time along with doing a little bit of work. That was that, that's that's amazing. Um, how are we for time? Well, also, also
1: hang time too. You could hang out with other guys. Yeah, too, which and, was nice.
0: And it seems like you appreciated. The like you you were one of those few people that maybe now you say you do, but I, it sounds like even then in the moment you were appreciating the moment of what was happening around us and who are what kind of work people are are coming up with. I don't know if you felt it in the moment, but it seems like the way you convey the story that that you were.
1: Well, to tell you the truth, I and this is not, this is not nostalgia talking. I remember literally loving especially in the early days being in comics yeah i absolutely loved it i love the people i love the work i love the environment i love the whole context of everything um you know my parents always used to think that you know my my love for comics would fade Mm -hmm. um, and it was true as a fan my my love for comics faded right 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 around the time uh I discovered women but uh, um, but more importantly though I was able to take the fan thing and turn it into a work thing uh, Very, I, I don't know how we're doing on time but very quickly I'll tell you literally how I broke into comics mm-hmm. I was at DC on an Easter vacation I think I was 16 and I was pestering somebody it might have been Dick Giordano and Saul Harrison who was the guy in charge of the production department you know I was literally a foot taller than him. I'm like 6'4", and and he was probably 5'4", 5'5". And he he terrified me. He terrified me, this little guy. And he saw me, and he knew me from the tours. And he said, you know, if you're going to hang around, you might as well get paid. So why don't you come in tomorrow? And I did two days on my Easter vacation doing monkey work. I was erasing stuff. I was doing Xeroxes. I think I went out and bought uh, cigars for Carmine Infantino. Um, I was literally doing uh, scut work. Yeah. Um, And Saul said, come back during the summer. And so that that was a warm-up for me uh, to get a summer job. So in between my junior and senior year in high school, I got that job. And they liked me, so I started doing... When I was in college, I was doing freelance production, and then eventually I, I, I started working for them on staff in the production department. And um, again, all of that happened because I had access. Yeah. But it was a way to turn my being a fan into a way to make kind of a living. I think I was still, I think I was still living with my parents at the time when I started. But um, I was in. And it was great to be there, and it was great to interact with people. Uh, I just absolutely loved it.
0: I think that's the lesson, though, that I keep hearing as, as I get older and I, and I talk to uh, creative people. Uh, y- keep doing what you love, and it's going to take you somewhere. But you're doing it for the – like you kept going there because simply because you loved it, and it ended up turning into the job that now you – are able to tell these stories and, and have been a part of a a such a significant part of comic book history. For those of us who love the medium and especially with where we are today with all of the things now that, you know, everybody knows who Black Panther is. Back in the times that you you know, Don McGregor was writing it, you wouldn't have been able to say it as a household name. And it all goes back to that time of those guys who did it for the love in a lot of ways. So it's so cool to have to have witnessed it.
1: Uh, Just as a quick sidebar, Don McGregor was an enormously passionate guy. I mean, (laughs) um, I think everybody who wrote comics or drew comics or was involved with comics had passion, but Don was very verbally passionate. You know, he was really into it. Um, I, I always kind of admired that about him.
0: That's so cool. How are you doing for time? Because we, we are over an hour, but if you need to wrap it up, that's all good. I'm
1: I'm I'm good for another 10, 15 minutes if okay. you have other stuff to ask.
0: Sure, sure. Um, so you mentioned before, uh, Joe Kubert was you know your top three uh, storytellers, visual storytellers. Who are the other people that occupy that space for you?
1: Um, I think I think Russ Heath and John Severin are tied. They're both great storytellers, but they weren't superhero guys. Mm. Um, and 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 toth, I think, is maybe I don't know if I, I can't say that any of these guys are the best or the or at the top, but I mean Marcharella and I say, well, who's gonna be on the comic book Mount Rushmore?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And then you usually Kirby is up there. Gotta be. Um, uh, Qbert is up there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think Neil Adams is up there. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth guy is always, uh, is, is always, you know, there's a lot of debate. I mean, Mark once said, you think Jim Lee should be up there? And I'm going, well, he's a candidate, Yeah, but is, is he better than Wally Wood? I mean, that's the other thing. I'm, I'm an enormous Wally Wood fan. Wally Wood was a fantastic storyteller. Yeah. Um, um, it's tough. It's it's tough. It's tough to pick. That's the fun of it, right? It is the fun of it. it makes for interesting lunches or or dinners or yeah. you know uh, uh, get-togethers where a lot of coffee or alcohol is consumed. Absolutely. But again, this is all the stuff that guys who are passionate about comics uh, they debate, and if they're smart about it, they don't make it like I can't fucking believe how stupid you are that you like this stuff. <laughs> which used to be me in my early New York days. Now that I've lived yeah. in Los Angeles for <laughs> 30 plus years, I'm a lot more, uh, you know, I, I, I agree to disagree or I get it. Right. But it's, it's storytelling is a big deal for me because uh, for example, I think Neil Adams is a great comic book artist. I don't think he's a good storyteller.
2: That's fair. Literally I, I can, I a much. lot of his
1: comics and storytelling is not great. Great energy, great drama, Great lighting, great draftsmanship, great inks, Mm -hmm. but he's not good with space. Um, And, uh, you know, he's not perfect. You know a guy who's a fantastic storyteller, more contemporary guy, guy that I admire enormously? Tim Sale.
0: Ah, that's, yes. Tim
1: Sale is, is, is a fantastic comic book artist.
0: He is. And he know
1: and he knows how to use all the tools. I would sometimes his draftsmanship would be a little bit of an acquired taste for me on some things, mm-hmm. but the way he could tell a story, the way he used environment, the way he uses space, his panel choices in terms of what to make something very big or very small. It, Tim's a wonderful, wonderful comic book artist.
0: Yeah, he's he's an example of. Uh, more detail doesn't necessarily make it a better book or a better story because you the, the way that the little things that you need to be attentive to he includes but you're completely immersed in it like you almost feel you're in the episode of you know an animated series of Batman the way that he he tells a Batman story that's oh, really sure. yeah
1: um you know the other the other thing is that there are some guys who are very popular, and I'm 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 absolutely puzzled as to why. And and guys like Tim, I don't know if Tim is as popular as he should be, because if you know anything about comics, you just see that he knows how to do everything so so freaking well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, it's it, it's it's an interesting parade of talent. If you have been well, if you're as old as I am. Mm -hmm. And you see all the guys who have come through comics over the years. Um, There's some guys everybody agrees on. There's some guys not, uh, some guys that are other people do not agree with you about, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Torello and I were talking yesterday about Rick Estrada. He loves Rick Estrada and Rick Estrada didn't do a lot of superhero stuff. He used to do war stuff. He did romance stuff, by the way. The sweetest man you'll ever meet. He was just incredibly warm and enormously pleasant, and and just an act an absolute you know sweetheart. Um, and his stuff was very sophisticated, great design. But if you were to ask a, a hardcore comics superhero fan, they go, "Who? Yeah." Um. So you know it depends on what you look at. I mean, Chirella once said to me, he "says I was a Marvel guy, not a DC guy," and I said. Well, and then he wound up working for D.C. for 20 plus years, Um, he said. But I got to know the good stuff, you
2: know.
0: You mentioned something before that I, I wanted to ask you then and I didn't want to forget. So I'm happy now that I'm remembering. But when it comes to inking. Can you can you explain to me as a as a layman who just enjoys the book and, and I can recognize inkers I can see when there's something different of, of who's uh, you know inking John Romita Jr. whether it's Klaus Jansen or um, Scott Hanna, but for you what makes what's the job of an inker for at uh, for a fan to understand and appreciate when the job is done right.
1: Well, the very first thing is not to fuck it up. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, basically, you are, you are rendering and you are helping to tell the story. Now, some guys, they pencil unbelievably tight. I find those guys tough tough to work with. Okay. Um, because I'm, I'm so influenced by the mega tightness of everything. Um, I like guys that are specific. But not final in terms of the line.
0: Could you give, could you give and, me an example of someone that was like that?
1: Um yeah. Uh well, I think Kevin Hopgood when I was doing Iron Man. Okay. Uh, uh when John John Paul's style hadn't quite developed when he did when, when he did uh uh static, the, the first issues of static. Um, you know, some guys were tight enough and some guys were too tight. The guy, again, the guy I loved inking was, was Cullen because Colin stuff looked tight, but it was really expressionistic. And so mm-hmm. I was always making choices. Okay. You know, um, okay. a lot of what I did, I think, was line-based and I wanted the stuff to be attractive. I think now if I looked at inking, I was going to ink again. If I had to go give myself a quick refresher course on how to ink, I would look at the way Busema inks Buscema. And um, and I would try and take some, some cues to that. I mean, part of it, you know, the guys I grew up looking at were like Joe Sinnott and, and Frank Giacoya and, um, again, uh, Giordano and, and, and all those guys. They had quite the line. And I sort of thought, well, inking was about the line. But no, really, inking is about doing justice to the pencils, maybe adding a level of style. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe adding weight uh, and maybe black or shadow to something. Mm-hmm. you know if, you know separating the foreground and the midground and the background
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because if you have a foreground figure and you put a big heavy line around it and then you have a midground either figure or background or a background figure or background and you use that same kind of weight, then there's no separation. Mm-hmm. You know it's, it's like a camera like certain cameras, long lens shots, you know, you see somebody in the foreground and they have, you know, they're in focus and then the background is soft or out of focus and it's mm-hmm. just color and shape. Well, that's partly what inking is about too, is like it's, it, it's helping the penciler's focus as intended stay, um, stay correct. Um, and I don't know if that's even the best word, correct, but you don't want to mess it up. And and then, you know, sometimes, you know, inking teams like when I inked Luke McDonald on Iron Man in the 80s, I, I brought a certain line to what Luke did. And Luke loved that. And we talked a lot. And I said, you know, man, you know. Use as much black as you can. Add, add light. Think about lighting. Think about the effect, lighting effects like, you know, guys like Wally Wood. Now, Williamson would do that double lighting thing where there would be some black over the course of the face. And then there would be, a, you know, like a color on the side, and then the rest of the face would maybe be fleshed toned You know, it's all about storytelling and creating mood and atmosphere and effect, and and good inkers help that happen. I think.
0: Yeah, there's because there's times where artists who I really enjoy are sometimes inked by an artist who you might like or or another inker, and you can totally tell, oh, this person is inking so and so. Is that the effect an inker wants to have or is that not something as desirable from your standpoint?
1: You know, I think it's all about casting Mm -hmm. and stylistically Mm -hmm. some guys are better cast than others. I'll give you an example. Back in the day, nobody inked Jack Kirby better than Joe Sinnott. Yeah. I I give Frank, I give Frank Giacoya sort of a close second place on that one because I love Frank, especially in Captain America. But Sinnott on... Kirby for the Fantastic Four, especially in that heyday, um, it was a perfect match. Just the way, you know, Vince Coletta, if he was inking the Fantastic Four, it wouldn't be a perfect match. Um, but the flip side is, Joe Sennett inked a bunch of Captain America stories that Gene Colan penciled. And I remember at the time kind of liking them, but because of Facebook, a lot of guys have been posting those up and I've been able to sort of reassess and, you know, Senate was one of my early heroes, but I did not think that Senate was a great choice to ink Gene Colon.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: Um, the thing about Gene is you have to kind of go with Gene, not fight it. Yeah. And some guys would fight the weirdness in the drawing Um. in ways that, you know, it just didn't work. I mean, I recently have seen a bunch of stuff that Bill Everett inked over Gene and I have to say, I didn't care for it.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, I don't think, I don't think Bill quite understood Gene and oh, um, it, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, then, you know, you have guys like, you know, when Wally Wood inked Jack Kirby on the Sky Skymasters uh, newspaper strip, and then they did some comics together, like early challengers of the unknown, which probably to most of your listeners go, Challengers of the what? <laughs> Wally who? Jack who? Um, but I always felt that Kirby and Wood together as a team were greater than they were separate. Yeah. And that's yeah. sometimes what good inking is all about. I mean, I love Al Williamson inking John Romita Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like Klaus inking a lot of people. Uh, Terry Austin was good on some guys and not good on others. Craig Russell would bring his really artful kind of line to almost everybody. And he was very faithful to the pencils, but his line was so uniquely his, mm-hmm. but his understanding of the drawing was so good that he put his line on top of somebody else and it, and it always had a great result. Great result.
0: That's so interesting so, to hear that that appreciation of understanding the artist's work in order to do your art along with them. As a, as a collaboration for it to sing properly. It's such an interesting – because it's funny you mentioned Joe Sinnott because he's one of those anchors specifically who I always see his – I know when he's inked it. I almost like this looks like Joe Sinnott. Let me go back to the credits. Yep, it was him. It's funny you brought him up because it does feel like that with him.
1: He had a very distinctive style, mm-hmm. especially in Kirby.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, listen, everything that I know about comics, and some people probably say I don't know anything about comics when it comes to doing the art side of things. Uh, I learned from paying attention. You know, I looked at a lot of guys' stuff. I I tried to absorb everything that I respected. Um, Some people would say I I would be trying to emulate Giordano too much, and there might have been some of that at certain times. But you know, it's, it's an evolutionary process. You don't start out the same guy in the beginning that you are at the end. Right. Now, for example, if I was going to ink something today, which I probably would have to spend two or three days just getting limber again,
2: <laughs>
1: I would probably use, um, uh, markers and some of these, uh, dry, uh, some of these brushes that have their own ink supply. Um, I might also just, you know, use a brush, you know, which I would dip in a bottle of ink differently. I used to use pens, mostly dipping pens for my style because I could lean on them and, and I felt my control was better. But I, I think today if I was going to do it, I might do it differently. And it depends on who the penciler was.
2: Right.
1: Um, you know, sometimes, you know, form dictates... Uh, the tools or or style dictates the tools. Um, you know, it was interesting when I worked with John Paul. I don't want to make a meal out of this, but you know, I used a brush a lot more with John Paul than I did a pen, because his stuff just seemed to say to me, "This is the line you get from a brush, the juicier line of a brush." Um, seemed to be appropriate. Um, I mean, I could make a pen. I could get a line with a pen that looked like a brush, but sometimes the sort of the softness of, of a brush seemed to be a bit more appropriate with some guys. Right. Yeah,
0: it's so it, interesting.
1: It's not a hard and fast thing, you know.
0: Yeah. No. That's that's the beauty of it is to see how you translate for each artist you're working with, or even each character, or each story. It re- might require a slightly different feel that, as the reader. We don't really appreciate all of those details. That's why it's so much fun to be able to talk to the people who are in the know. So you pay attention to it and, and can see what exactly is happening on that page and, and kind of how to feel about it as well. Um, before before I let you go, I just want you just, to. Just to, sort of,
1: just to sort of put an adjunct on yeah. that. Um, and that's why I always wanted to talk shop with guys who I admired. Right. You know to sort of learn from their experience to sort of get a tip or an idea about how to approach my own work when the, when the moment came, you know?
0: Right. Well, you had a, a wealth of talent and creators in, in your generation, probably was this, you know, the, the most, one of the most celebrated, the, all of them were hall of famers when it seems, when you look back and list those names, whether they were writers or artists, it was a great time to, uh, and thank you for being a part of that class for us too oh
1: there's no thanks necessary i just got lucky
0: <laughs> well you wanted it that was the thing you wanted I it. i did
1: want it i wanted it really 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 hard
0: yeah and and that's that's the thing so now with the film the documentary that that you're going to be working on how can we look out for it support it what is the 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 whole game plan
2: for you
1: well, what we're probably going to do with True Believers, which is the title of the, of the uh, Blue Gene Generation movie. In fact, I'm, I just uh, put the finishing touches on a pitch package for that. Um, but I, I have a, my own podcast called the True Believers Podcast on Patreon, where what I'm trying to do is create awareness for the material and for the, and for the potential film trying to get the word out. And, and even though it is a, you know, Patreon podcast, so there's some money involved, uh, what everybody gets is, you know, I'll do a reminiscence, uh, not unlike what we've done today, where I'll pick a theme or a topic mm-hmm. and I'll talk about the old days because I realize, sadly, cause I'm old, <laughs> um, uh, I have these memories and some people don't, uh, you know, you never forget stuff when you're young. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still still vivid for me. And so I have had some guests in recent times. I've done a couple with Mark Chiarello, which were a lot of fun. And then my friend Cy Boris, who's a screenwriter and producer and a raging comics fan. He and I have talked about stuff. We we did one podcast mostly about Western comics because unlike most people, you know, he he liked Western comics, Mm -hmm. as did I.
2: Yeah.
1: And... So it's it it started out with me doing about somewhere in the neighborhood of around twenty minutes, and now some of the podcasts are as long as an hour and ten hour and fifteen minutes. If I'm doing it with somebody, because again, like yours, it, you know, when it gets conversational, time has a tendency to fly. Yeah. Um, my last one that I just did for Patreon, I did a sort of a tribute to uh, the late and 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 very missed John Paul Leon. It was. Uh, I just felt it was important for me to talk about him and and how I felt about him. Um, a wonderful, wonderful guy and a remarkable talent. And, and the amazing thing about John Paul is like, when you get older, you're trying to find ways to save time. When you do a job, John Paul would say, no, I'm always going to take the tough way out. I'm going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to come up with a composition and then put everything that needs to be in that composition in there. Um, he was, he was great. He's great with environments. I love guys who are great with environment and, and set. And, um, you know, so that I do that. And basically, uh, what'll happen with true believers is we will either get it set up in a Hollywood sort of way, or when we're ready to do it, um, we will probably do a kickstart. Okay.
0: So we gotta stay out, stay on the lookout for that, and uh, your your True Believer podcast as well, the Patreon one. And there's some videos that are available on YouTube for people. Yeah, to watch. some of the
1: early, some of the early ones. My partner Dan McKeon who's one of my producing partners, and we worked with on together on King Cohen. They're putting them up on YouTube just to kind of get get people interested. You know, yeah. hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm not boring. And people go, well, oh, this is kind of fun, you know. Maybe this is worthwhile to sort of pay attention to and to support. But again, all of this is this pregame that you have to do. If we if we kickstart true believers, and I'm sort of frankly hoping that we're not. I mean, I hopefully we can we can sell it and someone will finance it because let me tell you, some financing movies is a pain in the ass. Yeah, I can um, imagine. You just you just want to get fun. You want to get financed and just say, okay, you got to do the job and get it done. That's right. what I'm praying right. for. But again, I think the story is important. And if we can't do it one way, we will try and do it the other way.
0: That's that, so, that's exciting. Um, and I'm I'm looking I'm really looking forward to seeing this story unfold. I really am.
1: Uh, yeah, time is a wasting and a number of a number of people that I would have interviewed have passed. Oh you know, yeah. you know, Len, Steve Gerber, Bernie. Yeah, you know, I knew Bernie pretty well um, so yeah now is the time yeah very much so
0: we gotta, we gotta get this show on the road uh, for, this, for this I like documentary. the sound
1: of that
0: yeah uh, thank you so much for coming on I really appreciated chatting with you I appreciate the stories and uh, your honesty is very refreshing it's so nice to, to hear stories that way um, thank you everybody for listening be sure to check out the True Believers Patreon podcast as well as some of the episodes that are available on YouTube to get a little taste of it and uh, hopefully you come back soon, uh, Steve. I really enjoyed having I, you.
1: I, I I enjoyed it, Eric. It was my pleasure. And if if you wanna if you wanna talk again, just let me know. I'd be, I'd love to do it.
0: Oh, that'd be great. Thank you so much. Stay tuned, everybody, for more episodes of the Cave of Solitude. We will back, be back soon. Stay safe and stay healthy.